This episode of the Big 5D Podcast is sponsored by Duda. Every 17 seconds, a new website is created on Duda. Partner with Duda to build high-performing websites at scale while reaching higher productivity with a customizable platform designed for agencies and SaaS companies. To learn more, please visit duda.co. That's D-U-D-A dot C-O. Welcome to episode 38 of the Big 5D Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Laughlin, Content Director for Big 5 Digital. Our guest is Zach Marks. He's the co-founder and CEO of GIA, a blockchain-based small business lender focused on emerging markets in Africa and Asia. GIA recently raised a $4.3 million seed round, but we don't talk about funding at all on this interview. As I told Zach before we started recording, my view is that the amount of money a company has raised is usually the least interesting thing about it. Not that funding isn't important, we all know it is. We're just much more interested in which problems a company is trying to solve, and how. We really hope you enjoy this interview with Zach. Zach, welcome to the Big 5D Podcast. Thanks so much, Charles. Happy to be here. Great. So your company is GIA. Is that pronounced correctly? That's right. So usually the first question is, you know, what is your company? And so what I ask is, what is your company? But in the course of answering what is your company, maybe the name, et cetera, tell us about your mission. Sure. So what GIA does is provides blockchain-based financing for small businesses in emerging markets. And our mission is really to unlock financial freedom and put entrepreneurs in control of their financial destinies around the world. Um, since you asked about the name, I think it's a good place to begin. Uh, GIA is actually sort of an homage to our team's multicultural background um, and multilingual background. And in Chinese, my, my co-founder's from China, and in Chinese, jia means home or family, which we think is the central financial unit. Um, in Hindi, Jia, uh, in Hindi, I lived in India for about four years working in microfinance. So uh, Jia means heart, and we think of this as building banking with a heart. And finally, in Swahili, which some of your members might be familiar with, um, uh, in Jia, so Jia with an N in front of it, means road or path. And we're really building the road or path to financial independence for small businesses. So that's how we got our name. And uh, Happy to go into the background of why I started it and who I am. Yeah, uh, well, the, the name, there was more to that than I thought. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, tell us, you're a co-founder of this company, and I want to get into the whole blockchain, all that stuff that you started with. But for, before we get to that, what is your path to uh, emerging markets? I know this is not exclusively Africa. It's an emerging market play, right? Yeah. But what is your path? You mentioned India. Kind of what is your path here? Yeah. So I mean, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, so not an emerging market, but I've really no, always not, loved uh, in Chicago. Neither are. Yeah. You know, I've always loved learning languages and always really loved connecting with people over food. And I think some of that passion made me know that I was going to work internationally once I finished college. So my first job after college was teaching English uh, since it was a way for me to hop around the globe. Mm -hmm. And um, so I taught in schools in Brazil and in Ethiopia and in India, um, sort of how I first started hopping around the world. And um, in each place, I became really good friends, usually with like the street vendors in my neighborhood. And in India, I was pretty close with the Chaiwala, the guy serving samosas and chai outside my school. And it's a guy who's working hard to make, make, a, make a living for his family and even provides employment for folks. Um, runs a good business, and he wanted to expand and have a second stall, and he just could not access financing to do that. 
Um, and that's, you know, small business financing is a real challenge in the US as well, but I think it's particularly challenging in emerging markets and sort of trying to figure out why it was such a challenge is what led me into the work I've been doing. Um, and so ever since hanging out with Ramesh the Chaiwala outside my school, I sort of began work in what I'd call basic three waves of microfinance. Um, if we think about what this core challenge is of like, why can't we get Ramesh the Chaiwala alone from a bank, you know, an Indian bank would say, well, there's a couple main challenges here. You know, a big one is I don't have any data to underwrite this person. I have no right. idea how many cups of chai or samosas he sells in a day. Another big challenge is just, he's probably not worth my while, just he's so small. Maybe he needs $500 of financing and milk and sugar and to, you know, whatever, another thousand dollars to open up a second stall. It's just not, it costs me more than that to go and serve this customer. And as a result of those challenges, and, and there are probably a handful of others, but there's really two main ones. We have a $5 trillion credit gap for small businesses in emerging markets. And that really became the, I guess, the defining challenge of my career. So I began working after, after, after I was teaching my first job, I was working in what I call microfinance 1.0. So this is working with traditional community finance groups. Uh, they have different names, different parts of the world. And in East Africa, they're often called Chamas or sometimes Sacos, a saving and credit cooperative. In West Africa, you have Susus. and Mexico, you have Tandas, different names, different places. But the general concept of these groups is people are saving and borrowing together in a common shared pool of money. These are often community informal uh, organizations or, well, or both. That's, or, oh, say more on that. So um, the... The, the sort of the Grameen bank model is often to work with what are existing informal community organizations, like info, as informal as, hey, there's 10, uh, 10 farmers in one little village and they all sort of get together on a weekly basis, but maybe they don't have any legal entity. Um, right. Or it could be as formal as, you know, the Philadelphia Farmers Credit Union, right. in which case right. it is formalized. But in, By informal, I meant like a non, not a legal entity. Yeah. More collective of individuals. Yeah. In general, the idea is just a collective individuals and it can be formalized or cannot be. Um, but what works about these things is, is people have this like sort of shared community ownership and interest, just like a cooperative. Um, what's really challenging is for the groups to scale. It's very difficult for them to grow beyond, you know, say 20 or 30 or hyper local group. It's very expensive for microfinance institutions to serve them. It's very difficult for them to access capital beyond their communities. And so in search of something that would scale a bit more, I moved into what I think is like the second wave of microfinance working in the world of fintech. Um, and so uh, I joined a, a company at the time. It was very small. It's called Tala. It's really a pioneering company. It was the first company to do mobile loans. So now around the world, there are probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of companies that do this. But um, back in 2014, Tala was the first company to come up with the idea that Let's say there are 3 billion people in the world without a credit score. Many of them have cell phones and your phone has all this data about you. And we can provide, we can sort of underwrite people's credit risk using this phone data and provide them access to a very small loan. And it turned out that this, yep, it turned out this solution. I had a quick follow-up, but Tala was a consumer play, right? For individuals? Well, that's what's interesting. Is actually, when we began, it really was focused on well, I think it, it, in short, I'd say it's like use case agnostic. Um, okay. You know, when we, I'm just trying to think of what data it's pulling off the phone and what decisions it's making off that data. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of it is individual data, but yes. the reality is, you know, most, many small businesses are just sort of sole proprietorships. And so 
Right. It's interchangeable whether you're assessing the individual or the business. Yeah. Let's say you're underwriting someone's mobile money receipts and Mm -hmm. they have a lot of transactions. That's like a hundred shillings, a hundred shillings coming in because they're selling bananas on the roadside. You know, would you call that consumer or small business? It's hard to say. Sometimes the the path kind of blurs. That's that's MSMEs in a lot all over the world, right? Exactly. Yep. And, um, but I do think you're right in that a lot of these mobile lenders, you know, the initial aspiration was really to provide financing for small businesses to expand. But what ended up happening is it, the, these loans are often used for consumer use cases. And, you know, in theory, there's I mean, nothing, who, who's to say what anyone should spend their money? As long as they're paid back, right? Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're paying back, it, it works. The challenge is they, you know, the more consumer the use case, often the more risky it is to get paid back, right? Because if you're financing inventory for someone's business and you know that they're getting the inventory, they're probably going to have to sell the inventory. But if you just Mm -hmm. give them cash and you don't know that they're going to buy the inventory they said, and instead they end up using it for something for their household and who's to blame them for buying groceries for the household, but it might not be a productive asset that they can get a return on. And that person might end up getting trapped in a cycle of debt that they aren't prepared to pay. Um, And, um, but but I'd say what, what left me ultimately to think of a path beyond just mobile lending is I saw that while that model scaled, it really got away from the community ownership element of microfinance 1.0. And in Kenya, we'd have our borrowers ask us quite often, they'd say, um, hey, in our SACO, a SACO is like a savings and credit cooperative, uh, after we repay our loans, we put our money in and we get shares. And we've been taking your guys' loans for a while now. And we know this company's worth a lot. We'd love to have, like, can we have shares? And there's no good way for a U.S. company to distribute ownership around the globe. But if we represent ownership on chain with the token, we actually have this new sort of innovative approach, a new type of business model that can let us sort of build a cooperative community owned uh, business at scale. And so the idea of GIA, like in its essence, was to take the community ownership element of microfinance 1.0 with the scale of microfinance 2.0. And so what we do today to implement that is we we provide inventory financing and invoice financing, um, mostly sort of working capital for small businesses in emerging markets. Um, today, our, our two markets are Kenya and the Philippines. Um, and we basically source that capital on chain on the blockchain, which lets anyone provide liquidity, which we then take to use to finance small businesses. Um, and when they repay, the idea is that they own they earn token rewards, which sort of gives them an ownership stake in this business. Okay. So and those tokens are uh, ultimately uh, convertible into currency on an exchange. That's right. Yep. Okay. Okay. So a couple things here. Well, let's focus on Kenya as much as we can. I know you're operating in two different markets. So Kenya, why, why Kenya? Uh, was it just, it's one of the, typically one of the five markets everyone starts a, a fintech company in, right? But why Kenya? Yeah, uh, a couple of reasons. I mean, one, just us personally, I've, I've worked in Kenya for the past 10 years and it helps to work in a country you know. But the macro fundamentals, the reason so many fintech companies get started in Kenya, of course, is because there's more, you know, broader digital financial services and mobile financial services adoption there than anywhere in the world. I mean, the Impesa story of, I was going to say, did Impesa really pave this road for for definitely for everyone? I mean, that's why there were that's why mobile lenders all started there. It's why pretty much every fintech company. I mean, it, it, you have so much more data to underwrite 
in a country like Kenya than you do pretty much anywhere else. Because just by looking at someone's SMS receipts or, you know, people can even take control of that and upload a, a PDF statement of their M-Pesa history. And all of a sudden, there's so much more data to underwrite against versus if they're just doing everything in cash. Okay. So walk me through a typical use case of a Kenyan MSME, if you can. Yeah. Typical use case would be, uh, there's this guy, I always like to shout him out because he's, he's is a great sort of champion of GIA. His name is Francis Njodage. He's in Githurai Market in uh, Kiambu, just sort of outside of um, Nairobi. And uh, here's a guy who sells spices, fruits and vegetables in a local market. I think you probably recognize a lot of businesses just like his. Um, he's a very entrepreneurial guy. He actually, you know, he's branded his spices. He has his own sort of like trademarks called Emperor Yard Spices. He makes biryani mix, a pilau mix. His store smells great. Anyway, so I was out, I was, I was with him hanging out once. And um, basically, uh, he, he mostly sells spices to local consumers, but also restaurants in, in his community. And so I was there and a local, a nearby restaurateur came by to buy some sesame seeds. And I think he needed something like five or 10 kgs of sesame seeds. And Francis was like, oh, I'm sorry, you got to come back tomorrow. And I was like, well, why? What, like, what happened? Is, is this an often occurrence? And basically what Francis said is, you know, he, Francis buys the sesame seeds in 25 kg shipments because the next increment after 25 kg is 100 kg. Mm -hmm. And um, the jump from that is considerable more capital is required. Now he could be paying a way lower unit price. So his margins could be way higher. And he if could, he's buying more, yeah, yeah. And he could keep more inventory in his shop so he wouldn't run out, he'd be able to make that transaction. So simply because he didn't have access to capital, he's having lower margins, he's not able to execute a business, right? And- it costs more to spend less sometimes, yeah. Yeah, and so that's, uh, that's like an obvious use case of someone who needs finance. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and so that's what we do actually, we help, Francis finances inventory, and now he can buy at, at higher quantities at lower prices. So, um, what? You, where is your biggest? Now, I've, you, you, data de-risks this for you to, to a certain degree, and the ability to talk through kind of your process for scoring. Do you have a credit, um, a proprietary credit scoring model, for example? Yep. Kind of walk us through how you've thought that through. Yeah, we do. And a lot of this is not really rocket science. I mean, traditionally, yeah. what are businesses trying to do? What's a lender trying to do when they underwrite someone? They're trying to see, does this person have cash flows and a dependable, productive business that money is going to keep coming in so they can repay the money we're giving them up front? Um, and so our, our underwriting engine takes in, I'd say it's, it's really um, a couple major buckets of data. So one is uh, is partner data. We typically work with local partners. These could be wholesalers or suppliers. Like you can imagine, you know, we tie up with wholesalers, the folks who would sell spices wholesale to a guy. selling these sesame seeds to your... Yeah, exactly, right? So we see, okay, this per Francis has been buying 25 kgs of sesame seeds every week for the last two years. We know he's a reliable guy. Let's like finance some of that. So a lot of that is partner data. It could be just purchase history, um, any other data that some of the partners have. For example, some of them have inventory management tools. We get to see a bit more insight into the business. Yeah. There's also other data that we get directly from the borrower. Sometimes they might upload their bank statements or their mobile money statements. Um, of course, we take their KYC and we do, you know, do run a credit reference bureau check. Um, and then a lot of that, we're basically running through a model to get some derived information to understand, okay, what is this person's actual income and what is their debt to income ratio going to be? Um, because we don't want to over, over indebt anybody. So that's really what the engine says. Um, 
it's what's helpful is then it sort of is continuously learning. So once we get the feedback of, you know, we've given someone a loan and then it's time, you know, it's time for their repayment, the, the model gets to learn and it says, okay, this is the characteristic of someone we approved for this much and they defaulted. We've got to change the model a little bit or, and they repaid, we've got to reinforce the model. Um, there's then a separate model for repeat loans. So maybe on your first loan, you, um, we make you eligible for $500, um, but we know that your business can handle more. So now we're starting to ladder you up from 500 to 600 to 700 and so on. Okay. So what are the most important KPIs for your business in a, in a, in deciding whether your business is working? I, I default rate is the obvious one, of course, but what are some other metrics that you kind of rely on to know is this working or not what when i need to turn the dials up or down yeah i think the most uh well one of the most helpful ones obviously repayment rate is helpful but even more helpful than that i think is repeat retention so you don't just want to see that a borrower repaid you want to see that they came and took another loan from you because that's right. they, they repaid and then wiped their brow in, in relief that's not what you want right yeah you don't want them to say okay poof i just thank god that's yeah. over. i'm done with them um you yeah. want to see them Coming back, often these you know these products they aren't one offs. It's not like um, you know I just bought a house and finally I finished paying my mortgage. Now I'm done. This is working yeah. capital for their business. They probably are always going to need some working capital from someone, just like you might always need milk or bread for your household. So it's a question yeah. of where are you going to go back and get your next milk and bread? Where are these guys going to get their next bit of working capital? So the most important KPI for us is is really repeat retention, and we want to see borrowers stick with us. We don't want folks churning out either through, obviously not through their fault, but through choosing yeah. your well, no, that or That leads to a question about competition then. Is your fear that they go borrow from someone else or that they just stop borrowing? I mean, what is the bigger risk for you? Oh, I mean, if, I mean, if, if their, if their business is self-sufficient enough that they don't need to take credit anymore. Well, yeah, of course. That's never, great. Yeah. I would never, uh, I would never say, "Hey, come back to the the debt. right." Um, you're, you're cash flow positive. What's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds great. I do think the reality is, you know, most of our most of our borrower segment um, are probably always in need of some financing, even if they do get to a point where they're cash flow positive. Um, these are entrepreneurs who always have their eyes out for their next option. Yeah, you want to get, you want to add a store or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. like once you get to cash flow positive, what are you going to do with that money? I think people generally have a sense that money sitting around sort of burns a hole in their pocket. So they'd like to find real estate to invest in or some livestock. Right, of course, of course. Yeah. So are you thinking of moving up to uh, larger lending opportunities then? For sure, yeah. the, the idea of um, starting with smaller inventory financing is it gives us a chance for small businesses to sort of prove them. It's, it's, it's a relationship. We each get to know each other. We get to show them, hey, we're a reliable, affordable financier, finance partner for your business. And they get to show us, yeah, we're reliable and we repay on time. And after a few iterations of that, then we can actually provide asset financing so that Francis doesn't just have to be buying, you know, chili powder on credit. He actually could invest in another shop or maybe even a new spice mill. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So I want to go back to the blockchain component of this. Um, I'll just ask it this way. Was it a better idea when you looked at it at the time than it is now? Or talk about how you see that going forward? Is that a long-term fun fundamental piece of the business? Yeah, just, I really think of applications of the blockchain, you have to look at it from a longer lens. And I don't really, I don't really view it in connection with like crypto hype. I know crypto is an asset class, blockchain is a technology. I understand the difference between the two. And there's probably yeah. even a more f profound difference between the two. That said, still, 
uh, I, you're, that sort of was the nature of the question. Yeah, no, I think um, the benefits that blockchain can bring for any business that's you know serving multiple geographies can be pretty profound in terms of reducing the cost of moving money across borders, um, right. not just for us as a lending company, but even for small business borrowers. So I think one thing that I've been surprised to see is a lot of businesses that we serve in Kenya, for example, maybe they want, if they're importing something from abroad, basically what generally has to happen is they have to get their Kenyan shillings into US dollars just to make that transaction. So a very common thing, mm -hmm. you know, say you're a Kenyan bakery and you're importing sugar wholesale from a sugar producer in Brazil, you have to get your shillings into dollars, probably through some bank in Dubai, which is very expensive, just so yeah. you can pay this Brazilian sugar producer in dollars. And then they have to do the hard work of getting it back into Brazilian real. So everyone's yeah. sort of like feeling this is kind of a pain in the butt. Um, There's a lot of steps and a lot of payments on each of those steps. Right? You're losing yeah. a lot of money every Everyone's time. Everyone's getting a cut along the way. Uh, yeah. And there's uh, there's central bank currency controls. You know, the Central Bank of Kenya might not want you moving that much, that many shillings out of the country. And um, it's really expensive for, for small businesses. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of folks who are just paying a pretty high tax just because of the fact that they live in a certain country. I mean, the currency devaluation happens. People who have Kenyan shillings today have like, 30% less purchasing power than they did a year ago. And that's a pretty unfortunate that's, situation that's massive. Yeah, yeah. for someone to find themselves in. And by representing, um, you know, US dollar stable coins are a great opportunity for more and more businesses to just participate in, you know, I guess a more fair economic playing field. Um, yeah. So we, you know, we source capital on chain and US dollar stable coins. And of course we give folks the option, we can off ramp it to them and just provide it to them in, fiat currency and Kenyan shillings. And many people want that. Mm -hmm. but increasingly, many are going to want to actually keep those loans in US dollar stable coins and, and use them that way. Right. So that was my sort of follow up is how receptive or even, well, yeah, how receptive are your end users, the, the borrowers to the notion of blockchain? And, and I, I, is it transparently explained to them or is it sort of in the background and doesn't matter? I mean, you know mostly it's in the background and it's abstract yeah. in a way. Um, you know, if you're taking, when you use your Chase credit card, like does Chase come up to you and say, hey, the, no money, idea what's going on. <laughs> the money that's provided yeah. to you, your Chase credit card went through yeah. 25 payments. Who cares? I just want to be able to swipe. Yeah, exactly. No, fair enough. I had this conversation recently with someone about AI and small businesses and how all these AI tools are being developed to help small businesses do this, that, and the other thing. And my point was they probably at some point will not be described as AI tools. They'll just be like, here's your automation tool or here's your digital assistant and it's AI is doing all the work. They don't have to know that, you know, or they may not care, you know, and I probably very similar. Um, yeah. You know, no one, needs, yeah. no one needs to know. Um, I mean, even imagine like the credit underwriting. Do we say to a borrower, like, your data is being analyzed by these six machine learning modules. Like, no, because who cares? Just, no. Give me the loan or don't. That's exactly right. So I kind of assumed that was the answer, but I thought I would ask. Yeah. Um, okay. So talk about your ambitions going forward for GIA in Africa. The main goal is really just to be small businesses partner in, in growing uh, what they're doing. Um, and we think of that obviously initially in financing, but I think there's a lot there are a lot of other areas that we can be a real helpful partner. Um, one thing that I've heard throughout my time working in microfinance from small businesses is not just, hey, I need capital, but as often I need resources, 
help me spend that capital more efficiently. I mean, that could be something as basic as some like entrepreneurship education. Um, but a lot of it is sometimes like creating a community. Uh, people want access to cheaper supplies. So like Francis might be stuck with one spice wholesaler, but if he's connected to other local spice vendors who have better, you know, better connections, maybe they're able to bond together and buy in bulk and access even better costs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most banks, most lenders do not provide that kind of community. Uh, but typically these communities exist offline, you know, Francis is already in like, I know like 20 WhatsApp groups of local vendors, but they're all kind of like disaggregated. They're not all connected to the same financial partner and they should be, you know, why not instead, instead of having them sort of coordinate across these distinct lines, why not say, Hey, you can all bond up and take a social line of credit from GIA. So we really think investing in community is a really big piece of what we're going to do. Um, and in the long run, we're helping, we want to, we want to help, help folks, not just, you know, finance their business day to day, but actually build wealth and prosperity in the long term. And so that means like uh, financial management tools and things of that nature, or that's right. Yeah. We want to help people save and invest and build reserves for the future. You said something very interesting just a moment ago, which is the whole idea of uh, Francis is in these multiple WhatsApp groups. Do you have more thoughts on how aggregating those groups could be an opportunity? And what what is the enabling technology that would be most, make the most sense there? If you have thoughts on that, yeah, yeah. Think about the fact that um, each one of those individual vendors, like let's let's say they're all spice vendors, or let's say like they're all just like individuals. Who knows really what they? Mm-hmm. Every one of them, when they go to a bank, probably cannot access a loan. Maybe even every one of them. Maybe maybe of all of them, the only one who would currently even be able to access a GIA loan is Francis, because you know we maybe work through a local wholesale partner and we got access to him and have proprietary data about him. But imagine if you could quantify all that data that's in a WhatsApp group that shows, oh, this is someone who's been providing this much, you know, they have these insights on how you can save, they have these insights on how you can sell, they have these thoughts on how you run a digital marketing ad, right? That person should probably be eligible for something, but currently is not. Um, and I think the sum of the sum of that WhatsApp group community's like purchasing power is way greater than like its individual parts, right? If they could all just mm-hmm. tie it up together. And I don't think anyone's really, really cracked that nut of, provi- of providing a community finance or social finance product at scale. Um, and I think we're, we're really interested in doing that. And what we already see, I mean, our highest, um, our, our biggest source of, of new borrowers is from referrals. I mean, Francis alone, I think, has referred like 20 borrowers to us from yeah. the local market. Um, and that's because there aren't a lot of great options out there. So once you find someone who's working for you, you want to you know, let your community know. But rather than serving Francis and each of his 20 referrals on a one-on-one basis, what if we could serve them at a lower rate uh, just with one big loan and they sort of manage it together? I think that's like a great application of something in the future. Okay, cool. Um, What about geographically within Africa? What are your thoughts in the near term? Um, Very excited to explore markets beyond Kenya. Uh, I think the the natural thing that I think a lot of foreign venture-backed companies do is sort of look at like Kenya in the East and Nigeria in the West and, you know, maybe South Africa is too advanced for them. And then sort of like prove something in those places and then see where they can go from here. Uh, I think that's sometimes like just basic, like, you know, Western VC math. I think we'd probably be interested in exploring countries that aren't just. VC wants you in Nigeria within 18 months or something like that. Yeah, Yeah. I think, you know, and we'd be really excited to be in Nigeria, but it's also a very competitive and complicated and expensive market. Um, and sometimes it might be a little easier to enter somewhere else. We actually have a we have an invoice financing program going right now with a company in in Ghana, which is really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. Company there that sort of has a uh, basically they have like a financial 
man, uh, health management uh, software for MSMEs in Ghana, and we're working with them to. Is it Oze? It's called Oze. O Z E. Yeah, yeah. I'm from. I know Megan. Megan uh, from Oze was a speaker at our last conference. Amazing. Yeah. So we're working with Megan and um, providing them invoice financing. It helps also her, you know, her brother is a pretty prolific investor who invested. Hacky. In I, I follow his newsletter and oh. he's an investor of yours. Yes, exactly. Okay. I did. I did read a little bit before we talked. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> okay. Well, that's probably not a bad place to wrap it up. Uh, really exciting stuff. Um, I'd like a final thought from you on um just what do you think from a macro level, forget what you're doing, just from a macro level, what are a few things that you'd like to see happen in the next few years that would help small businesses in Africa? Mm, great question. Um, I think, well, there's still a lot of work to be done around just like the basic financial infrastructure of getting more small businesses into the digital financial services world, right? Like I mentioned earlier, I think the reason why so many folks are in Kenya is because there's so many fintechs are able to serve folks in Kenya is because there's so much data around them. So governments could do more work to sign up more small businesses for bank accounts, for example, or for mobile money accounts, um, and to do more work to provide low cost, easy to use payment gateways so that more small business transactions can happen in a digital fashion. Um, you know, as we know, cash is very expensive. Uh, and so the, le the lower reliance on, but it's also very convenient, which is why people use it. Sure. So the more governments can do to to move folks from cash towards digital economies would be really powerful, as well as sort of strong KYC regimes. Uh, sometimes it's really difficult for fintech providers to come in and do anything if they don't really know who their customers are. I think a really important development that needs to happen, um, frankly, everywhere is uh, is having more robust credit reference bureaus. So in the 10 years or so I've been working in Kenya, um, the credit reference bureau still I think it only recently started really incorporating data from digital lenders. So that meant, you know, if you borrowed from a bank, you were covered, but only like the top like five or 10% of the population is actually borrowing from banks. Everyone else is doing it from maybe these mobile fintech lenders. And um, there's no re real time information. You know, in the US, if I apply for a credit card from Chase and then another one from American Express and then another one from SoFi, eventually I'm going to get dinged and they're going to say, hey, you just are applying for credit cards left and right, and we, we're going to pause you on that. Right. But in Kenya, there's nothing that stops that. So you can be taking a loan from Tala and Branch and Mshwari and all these other providers at once, and you're stacking them on top of each other. Really bad for you as a borrower, but also bad for the lenders. No, it is. Th that's a problem in buy now, pay later as well, which I know is not this, sure. but uh, yeah. that is a similar problem. Yeah. Totally. We just need better insight into what people are, how people are, are treating credit, because it is kind of like a... It's like a medicine that can be really helpful, but it can also be abused like a drug. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Probably a good spot to end it on. Thank you very much for joining us today. It was a lot of fun. Perfect. Thanks, Charles. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to the Big 5D podcast, the voice of small business digital transformation in Africa and the Middle East. This podcast is a production of Big 5 Digital and is written, produced, and hosted by me, Charles Laughlin. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and kindly give us a rating and a review. This will help others find us. Thanks again to our guest, Zach Marks, and to our sponsor, Duda. Please remember to visit them at duda.co. That's D-U-D-A dot C-O. Thanks for listening and see you next time.